Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Deputy Commissioner Barbara Simaglio, who is from the Vermont Department of Health. Um, Barbara has really led an initiative to establish a hub-and-spoke model is what they call it. And this is uh, addressing the continuum of care for substance use disorder in their state, an innovative program that has linked many, many different service providers as well as state and local resources together in one tight team to address this epidemic that we're experiencing and they're certainly experiencing in their state. So Barbara, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Okay. So first of all, you uh, before the program began in 2012, can you frame what your state was like and what the uh, emerging epidemic looked like in Vermont? Well, like, uh, like in many other parts of the country, we were seeing uh, an increasing number of people presenting for treatment with a primary problem related to opioid use. At that time, it was primarily prescription drugs. Uh, we were experiencing increasing numbers of overdose deaths, law enforcement becoming increasingly concerned about um, incidents in the community involving opioids, and uh, hospitals and medical partners being concerned about um patient situations that they were encountering. So we were really hearing from many facets of the community that no longer were they just concerned about problems with alcohol and marijuana, but there was this increasing struggle with opioids, which seemed to be beyond the control of, of the systems that we had in place. So what were the first steps you took to address Mm -hmm. that? We actually started with bringing people together. Uh, We are fortunate here in Vermont that we have a good working relationship with our healthcare community and our uh, payers, our Medicaid uh, department. And and so, of course, the first step was some internal discussions. Also, we are in the health department, so our commissioner uh, became involved in talking with other medical colleagues about how we might engage them in helping us address the issue. So um, I guess 
like any good public health planning, uh, we looked at our data. You know, what were we seeing, where the problems were, um, who our resources were, uh, and brought people together to talk about how we might create a response that would help us address the emerging problem of, of more people struggling with opioid addiction. Somehow you, you evolved to the point of deciding you're going to establish these regional specialized addiction treatment centers uh, to address this, this issue. Yes. Um, Vermont is a very rural state. We're a small state, but nonetheless rural. And what that means is that we do not have a lot of highly specialized addiction treatment centers. Most of the folks who do addiction treatment are uh, part of a larger mental health center, and they have some uh, specialized counselors, but they work with a broad variety of, of individuals. So we were, we were hearing that uh, people were uncomfortable or unable to um, start to deliver the more specialized opioid treatment, which does involve medication, either methadone or uh, buprenorphine primarily. And we realized that we were not going to be able to address the problem by mounting efforts in all the small communities around the state. And that got us thinking that if we had specialty centers in certain regions that were accessible to primary care physicians and local counselors or local programs, that by having those specialists, who could um, assess a client need and get them started on a medication and a treatment plan, work with them as they stabilize, and then move them out to work with their primary care doctor uh, as appropriate or if appropriate, that we would probably be more successful by um, creating that type of a model. So that really was the foundation was recognizing that we didn't have the kind of resources to have specialty programs everywhere. So we had to come up with some different kind of a model that would allow for both specialization and localization. So you created these five hubs initially. Yes. And those that require less intensive help you were able to refer out to the what you called the spokes, and you established nine different spokes to begin with. Yeah, we um, we actually had uh, several methadone programs already in place at that time. We looked at where we had gaps and where we wanted to enhance our, our methadone programs or OTPs, opioid treatment programs, and those are specialized um, organizations that can provide both methadone and buprenorphine therapy, as well as all the counseling that's required to manage, uh, manage the client. So we established in five locations um, a center, which we call uh, the hub. And then around those hubs, we recruited additional spokes, uh, which are basically primary care offices with some additional clinicians added. And together then those formed a regional hub and spoke team. That network uh, could both screen and assess a client or a patient. They could develop a treatment plan, decide 
who was better to serve that person, whether they needed the hub services for more intensity and for methadone, because only a hub can provide methadone uh, by federal regulation. You have to be an opioid treatment program. So if a client needed that level of care, then they would go to the hub, and if they could be seen in a primary care setting, then they could be seen at one of the spokes, which are decentralized. So if, you know, a, a hub serves maybe, um, you know, 20 to 30 different communities or sometimes more, uh, there could be primary care physicians in many of those communities who might only be seeing, you know, a handful of patients, but could be available to accept those referrals as, as people needed that, that level of care. And then the hubs would also be um, experts, if you will, uh, providing technical assistance or consultation to a primary care physician if they got into a circumstance where they felt they needed some specialty guidance about managing a patient's care. And you have upwards of 190 spoke physicians with an embedded staff or more of 50 full-time employees assisting them. That's yeah. Uh, at the at the height of uh, of the the recruitment, we did have maybe even over 200 at some point. Uh, it's probably a more stabilized number of about 125. You know, once you know people have come and gone and. The model is really built upon a model that began with our healthcare reform in Vermont, and that's called the Blueprint for Health. And they developed a model that would add specialized staff to assist in a primary care office for a chronic disease management approach. And that began with managing uh, chronic diseases like diabetes. But we translated that into a model that would work for patients with opioid use disorder. As part of this, she brought together three key governmental agencies, the Vermont Blueprint for Health and the Department of Vermont Health Access Medicaid uh, Health Services and Managed Care Division and the Vermont Department of Health's Division of Alcohol and Drug Abuse Programs. Yeah. Um, and you all came together along with local social service groups, addiction specialists, and doctors uh, to work on this program and pull it all together and come up with this resulting model. Um, and traditionally, all of these folks are used to working in silos. How long did it take to get everybody on the same page? Well, uh, we actually are all part of an agency of human services. So we do have an umbrella government agency that um, houses both Medicaid and public health. So we, we were in silos by department, but we did have some history of working together. Basically, our secretary of uh, the Agency of Human Services was the person who uh, said to us all, this sounds like a great opportunity. I want everyone to work together. Let's form a plan and take it to the, to the governor and get his support. So that was really, um, you know, the leadership required was uh, at the secretary level. And he, along with our commissioner of health, uh, myself as deputy commissioner, the commissioner of Medicaid, and um, the blueprint director came together to form the initial plan. 
And, and I would say, you know, because Vermont's a small state, we approached it from a statewide lens. But in a larger state where there might be counties that are as big as the whole state of Vermont, or bigger, in fact, you know, you could approach this as some states are doing on a county level or a city level. So I think it's very scalable um, depending on the infrastructure. But leadership at the high level is, is critical, especially for getting the Medicaid uh, and later on the insurers. Uh, we have also worked with our uh, primary insurance company in Vermont. So, Barbara, how long did it take you to pull this program together? We began uh, the planning, I think, early, as you said, in, in 2012, um, began doing the planning. And it coincided with the Affordable Care Act and the opportunity for some new funding. So um, probably the first year we really got the plan coordinated and then had to submit uh, the paperwork for a Medicaid uh, plan amendment. So a couple of years to really get the whole thing put together, including writing up the Medicaid um, plan amendment, the state plan amendment. The common spoke practice settings. So there are primary care, OBGYN, psychiatry, and pain management practices. And part federally of qualified health centers as well. In terms of your continuum of care, uh, those that are in greatest need would start off at the hub and then gradually they're referred out to the spoke and for the services that they need as they need them. Well, it really works both ways, bi-directionally, and it depends upon uh, a couple of things. There is no wrong door, so someone can enter at the hub, they can enter at their primary care office, or they can you know, be referred through another uh, treatment organization or hospital. So if they come into the hub, they would get a full assessment, and they would be it would be determined whether they need that level of care or whether they could be referred back to their primary care uh, to start treatment there. Um, conversely, if they come in through their primary care uh, through the process of doing uh, his or her medical assessment, he or she would determine, can I handle this person's needs in my office or do I need to refer them to a higher level of care? And so they can really enter either place if it's determined that they need methadone treatment. They would definitely have to start in the hub. And many of those people would remain in the hub because you can't provide methadone treatment for addiction in a primary care office. But if they start at a hub and they are being treated with buprenorphine, which is about a third of the patients come in and start on buprenorphine. Then once they're stabilized, they can move back out to their primary care site. And again, if a primary care physician, um, for example, my local physician, my personal physician does uh, this type of work, and, and he has patients who come in and know that he treats opioid addiction, and they would start seeing him. He... Um, can take them right in and start seeing them. So uh, there, there are a couple different pathways, and they, 
now that the, the work is stabilized a bit, patients in the local community kind of know who the physicians are and who to call, and the referral networks are, are much clearer than they were in the beginning. What if someone came into the program and they just wanted to go down the road of abstinence uh, as opposed to medication-assisted treatment? Would there be an option yeah. for them? So um, there are three medications that are approved for addic- opioid addiction uh, treatment. Methadone and buprenorphine, we've mentioned. The third is naltrexone, or brand name Vivitrol, uh, which is a blocking uh, drug that actually prevents the effect of of an opioid from going um, to the circuitry in the brain. So there are people who choose that medication as well, Uh, and um, it is an injectable substance, so it's a 30-day injection that uh, some people choose, and some people uh, choose to go the more traditional route of abstinence. They would probably not end up in a hub because the hubs are really specialty for people who are um, on medication-assisted treatment, but they could be referred to a residential treatment program or an outpatient treatment program. We do have a full range of treatment available, not just for opioids, but obviously for alcohol, cocaine, whatever substance. So in the network, there are many options. The hub and spoke was really developed specifically for medication-assisted treatment. But if someone uh, was assessed uh, to need something else, uh, whether that be residential or um, abstinence-based treatment, they would be worked with in the same way to find the right um, place for them to go. Okay. So um, you're really trying to address any, any avenue, the right avenue for the person who's seeking treatment, the right for their particular oh, needs. Oh, absolutely. Um, all treatment is individualized. There's been a lot of focus on the hub and spoke, but uh, we have a full spectrum of services, and it's all individualized treatment. So we've really tried to build out a, a very comprehensive approach. And actually, I think that that's an important part of this story is the fact that you haven't just stopped there in their treatment, but you've linked this to many different facets of their life. You've also included job placement and family and recovery support, including peer support and recovery housing. Absolutely. And again, I mentioned we're part of a larger agency of human services, so there are connections to all the other types of support that that a client can get throughout the human services network. And um, the one thing we found for everyone, though, to be successful in recovery, whether it's for opioids and using medication or whether it's abstinence or whether it's uh, alcohol, uh, whatever it is, peer support is really essential and an important element to help someone maintain long-term recovery. Now, treatment is a beginning. It helps someone get on track and and find their sobriety. Uh, But to maintain a life in recovery is really about creating a new peer network. So 
um, that is a very important component of what Vermont has developed is our, our robust peer network. So do you have some success stories that you might be able to share with us about this program? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are many, many success stories, and uh, we are in the process of doing a full uh, evaluation of the program. But a couple of population indicators that we look at um, – First of all, one of our goals was to improve access uh, to, to treatment, and, and we've done that. You know, we still have some waiting lists, but we've, uh, in the last several years, since 2012, we've more than doubled our access to, to treatment, and we're now serving um, over 6,000 people in the hub and spokes which is a pretty big number for a small state of 625,000. Yeah, you doubled. We also look at things like uh, how are we doing on the overdoses. And while we did have more overdoses this year than last year, um, of the New England states, uh, which all have very high overdose rates, uh, Vermont is the only New England state that did not see a statistically significant increase in our overdose rate. And we think that that is definitely connected to the robust network of services that we've built out. Um, Our initial evaluation data, we're looking at all of our Medicaid data to understand what services people are using and what their medical care looks like before and after treatment. If you back out the cost of the treatment, what we are seeing, um, and again, this is preliminary data, uh, but what we are seeing is less use of the emergency department and uh, seeing those medical costs going in the right direction. Uh, so we're hopeful that when we complete the full evaluation, we'll see some very positive return on investment overall. And when is it projected that you will complete that evaluation? Yeah, it'll be later on this fall. We will be getting something ready for the legislative session, which starts up again in January. So that that will be ready to be distributed later in the fall. Terrific. We'll have to come back and uh, revisit the issue at that time. Yeah, we're happy to share that with you. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. So, Earlier in this uh, this show, you mentioned how how important leadership was, and the governor who established helped to lead the effort to establish this program was quoted as saying, "The time has come for us to stop quietly averting our eyes from the growing heroin addiction in our front yards while we fear and fight treatment facilities in our backyards." Wow, that was a powerful quote. Yeah. In 2014, he devoted his whole State of the State speech to the opioid crisis because he was so struck by hearing from people all around our state what an impact it had had on their lives and their communities. So, um, yeah, it was pretty powerful. And, again, we've had a very high level of leadership. Our our current governor maintains a high level of leadership on this issue. Our, Our secretary, our health commissioner, our public safety commissioner. So I think we have a lot of uh, folk who who are really um, talking about ending the stigma. You know, uh, one of the things that's so critical is if someone has a disease, they need to get treatment. And 
it should be no different with addiction than it is with cancer or diabetes, you know, where everyone comes around the person and says, how do we help you? You know, we want you to get back uh, to a healthy state. And so that's exactly what we're trying to do here in Vermont is to decrease the stigma, uh, let people know that uh, treatment is available um, and treatment works and they need to seek that treatment and we need to support them when they're ready to seek that treatment. Sometimes it takes more than once. Uh, just like any other chronic disease, it's a lifelong struggle for many people. Uh, but they did not ask to have this disease and for many of them, um, they got into it because they were coping with multiple, you know, medical conditions uh, that created a lot of pain and agony in their life. So um, getting rid of the stigma is really, I think, the message that we want to get across and making sure people have access to help on a timely basis. You've developed a uh, amazingly successful program here in a relatively short period of time, just two years. For those communities that are out there listening to this podcast that haven't uh, or are contemplating embarking on a program such as yours, what advice would you give them, Barbara? Depending on where they are or who they are, I would say if you're a primary care doctor, uh, think about how you are able to help those people in your practice that might need, you know, these kinds of services. And be willing to open your eyes that they're there. You know, uh, every medical practice has people with addiction, whether it be alcohol, opioids, whatever. Um, people trust doctors and they should be able to talk to their doctor about this disease like any other. So I would encourage doctors to just um, step up to, to help these individuals. Um, I would encourage anyone to make sure they know who the providers are in the community. And if you're in a leadership position, to, to try to bring some of these folks together to really create a network. Hub and Spoke is, you know, it's just a network. It's, it's what we're trying to do to improve health care in so many ways. And um, just getting the right people together and talk about how do we work as a team, how do we create a network, you can do amazing things. It just requires everybody being willing to come around the table to get started. Well, this has been really informative. What final comments would you have for our listeners, Barbara? Well, first of all, if, if you're listening, I think it's uh, a raising awareness about this issue. Um, I don't think there's a family out there who hasn't struggled with some type of addiction. And people often say they really don't know how, what to do or what to say. And, and I think programs like this, uh, your podcast where you're helping people learn how to talk about uh, addiction and, and what options are available are a wonderful place to start. So um, wherever you are, there's something you can do, even if it's just listening. Well, thank you so much, Commissioner. Uh, really appreciate your, uh, your comments today. You're welcome. We've been joined today by Deputy Commissioner Barbara Simaglio, who's led the way in implementing an innovative hub-and-spoke model to address opioid addiction in their state. 
My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.